What we're going to do tonight, how many people just curiously were not at either of the services this morning? So this is the first time that you're sort of jumping in. So a smaller percentage, but most of you have heard at least something this morning. What we're going to talk about tonight is, first of all, I want to begin with a little bit of just what I'm going to call an evangelical history, a recent evangelical history um, of the end times. So how many people here just curiously came into the kingdom during or as part of, or at least on the peripheral of the Jesus movement? So just about as many people as, so probably 10% or so. You know, the Jesus movement was really, um, obviously it's started more out in California, but it pretty much swept the country back in the 60s and 70s. This was really the most significant revival that the United States has had, and it actually made its way all the way to Europe, but this was the most significant revival in recent American history. It was the Jesus movement. It's almost impossible to go to just about any church today and not have, uh, you know, at least 10% of the church having, having been uh, brought in as a result of that. Now, one of the primary driving factors behind, because I go, okay, so if this was one of the greatest revivals in recent American history, I go, what were some of the drivers behind it? Um, because obviously we'd love to see revival repeated in our day. And um, of course the Holy Spirit was being poured out. You know, I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's just that simple. But another huge factor was there was a profound interest sort of out of the blue in the, in the subject of biblical prophecy. And that was driven largely, by the way, because uh, the state of Israel had been reestablished in 48, and then in 67, they took Jerusalem back as the possession of the, of the Jewish state. So it's really pretty simple. When people look out at the earth and they go, okay, events are taking place which confirm the reliability of the Bible, they hold up the Bible and they go, okay, so this thing's actually true. Because you can't, you know, you can, there is such thing as self-fulfilled prophecies, but there are not self-fulfilled prophecies to where, you know, well, you just happen to create the Holocaust, you know, that's going to drive Jews back to Israel. You know, like that's not something you can manufacture for a state to be reestablished over a couple thousand years, for language to be revived, you know, this sort of thing. That just doesn't happen apart from the hand of God. And so people were looking at the state of Israel, they're looking at the words of the biblical prophets, and they're going, this book's true. This is actually true prophecy. And then they go, okay, so that must mean all this other stuff, like repent and believe the gospel, repent and be saved, you know, um, drunkards don't enter the kingdom of heaven and all these kind of things, fornicators, et cetera, et cetera. They go, okay, gosh, that stuff's true as well. And so if that stuff's true, maybe I need to take the, the moral claims and the claims of my creator on my life seriously. So biblical prophecy became a, a significant foundation for this massive ingathering into the churches. Now, how many remember, how many were sort of really into Bible prophecy during that period? I always just like to kind of get a read, smaller percentage. So during that period, there was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Millions upon millions sold. This thing literally scared the hell out of people. Um, you know, people read it and they were like, and, you know, it was, this was a huge tool in the hands of God to help scare unbelievers into the kingdom. I mean, quite literally. Um, but there was, all, there was a, a tremendous amount of interest in biblical prophecy. Now, the, the specific, um, the specific um, how would I say it, um, model of the end times that people were embracing and, and studying during that time is something called premillennialism. 
I always try to avoid using terms like this. Premillennialism simply means this. Jesus returns before the millennium. He returns previous to, pre-millennial. And then he returns and he establishes his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. And all of the promises made to Israel throughout the prophets are fulfilled for a thousand years, probably a literal thousand years. And so Jesus returns, you know, that whole scenario. That's called premillennialism. Well, throughout much of church history, another model of eschatology was called amillennialism or amillennialism, uh, as Americans usually say, Brits say, amillennialism. And this is the idea that the millennium is actually metaphorical. It's allegorical. It's spiritual. That we're kind of in the millennium now. You know, it's, we're not to take that, those descriptions of this millennial kingdom literally. Where it's just we receive the blessings in Christ now and this sort of thing. A means really no. There is no real millennium. Okay, and th- so throughout, you know, church history, the Catholic church, I mean, and even today, much of the church today, much of the Protestant church, much of the reform movement embraces amillennialism. They don't believe in this literal thousand-year period. Now, I'm a firm premillennialist. I am wholeheartedly, absolutely, completely convinced that that is definitely what the Bible teaches. You know, within um, theology, you have to be careful, you know, where to take your stand. And this is, this is a, an area, I mean, I'll fellowship with anyone and I'd rather go to a church, you know, that's loving Jesus and doesn't have their eschatology right than not go anywhere. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I will debate anyone um, and sort of, you know, and stand on this issue that the Bible clearly teaches a premillennial perspective. But here's the thing is out of that whole period, there were a lot of excesses and errors. How many people remember the book, Booklet? It was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. That messed a lot of people up. It really did. People were expecting, based on some chronology and calculations, that the rapture was going to be in 88. And, this, and then when that doesn't happen, it turns people's hearts cold. They go, oh, end times. Oh, I got burnt by that. So that was a big problem, was date setting. And that's still a problem to this, to this day among premillennialists, among those who believe that Jesus comes suddenly and all this. This is a big problem. Jesus said, don't do it. He says, no one knows the day or the hour, you know? And then we go ahead and do it anyway. It's crazy. But that was a big problem, and there's also just sort of a lot of general goofiness that can come with the end time stuff, you know? I speak at all the conferences, believe me. I walk down the book aisles, and I'm like, you know, we got over here, you know, giant, alien, hybrid, antichrist, and 10th dimension, you know, and I go, what does this have to do, some of it with the Bible? I'm like, this is getting crazy. It's like a science fiction. I was at, um, for 20 plus years or so, I I had um, a business that I ran, and I was sort of doing ministry for a decade or so while with a full-time job. And I was, I was on a job site with this um, client and um, I usually never told anyone that I had this other life. And, um, and they go, well, I, I, I hinted or something. I travel, I speak at churches and she, oh really? Well, what do you do? And I said, well, I write about, um, you know, the end times, biblical eschatology. And she goes, oh, I love that stuff. I love, you know, like science fiction. I've always loved comic books and I love the end times. I was like, you put the biblical end times and you linked it with comic books and science fiction. But that's how a lot of people view this stuff. And believe me, guys, this stuff is not science fiction. Stuff's unfolding right in front of us right now. It's not, it's not fiction at all. So there's a lot of the goofiness, there's the date setting, there's the goofiness, and then there's this, is that out of that whole emphasis, this premillennial emphasis, there was an attitude that was criticized, and it was called 
People criticized it because they called it abandonment eschatology. Eschatology just means the study of ultimate things, the end times. And so they said it's abandonment eschatology. What do they mean by that? Well, you had um, a famous phrase that came out of this period which said this, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Okay, if the ship's going down anyway, then why are we bothering polishing the brass on a sinking ship? In other words, if this whole world that we live in right now, this whole planet's going to be burned with fire and Jesus is going to restore it, then who cares if I litter? I'm kind of using an extreme example. But in other words, why are we trying to save the world if Jesus is going to come back and save it? And so in my opinion, this was a huge problem and it was a legitimate criticism. And sometimes if we're not careful, if we don't apply premillennial eschatology rightly, we can give ourselves over to abandonment eschatology, abandonment mentality. And that sort of also went hand in hand with the idea of specifically the pre-tribulational rapture, because it was kind of like, we're going to get raptured out of here before all the difficulty, so we don't need to worry about that, like, it's sort of, it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, but we're going to be out of here and Jesus is going to fix everything. So there was sort of a detachment and it, it oftentimes encouraged a lack of cultural and societal engagement. Okay. Some of these things are true. Not always. I want to be clear. Many, I mean, some of the largest denominations in the world right now, the Assembly of God, clearly premillennial, is the largest missions organization in the world. You can say the same thing about much of the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, on and on and on. It's not entirely abandonment, but it often does encourage an abandonment mentality. Now, then what happens is, so now we're coming into the 90s and the early 2000s, and you had a lot of pastors, and pastors are concerned with their flock. And they looked at people who, first of all, got burnt out by 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 80, and they looked at all this, and they go, you know, I used to be excited about all this end time stuff, but now I see the bad fruit. I see the disappointment in the dates. I see the abandonment mentality. And they go, we want to promote an eschatology, a view of the end times, a view of the future that encourages my flock to be active and engaged. And that's a very natural desire for pastors. I mean, that makes sense. You want to see your people engaged with the world, reaching out, not just building bunkers, not just building. It's funny, if you have your eschatology wrong and your primary focus is on the kingdom now and not the kingdom to come, you can either go one extreme and either you build yourself a castle or you build yourself a bunker. And so we've kind of seen a little bit of both. But so pastors look and they go, we, I don't want my flock falling into that, that error. And so then what happened is the natural human thing, we take the pendulum and we go to the opposite extreme. And so they go during the 60s and 70s, it was premillennialism. Then they embrace something called post-millennialism, which is the idea that it's our job as the body of Christ to Christianize the world and conquer the world for Jesus, and then we hand it to him on a silver platter, that we're the ones that conquer the world. And so particularly in the charismatic Pentecostal world, this has actually become the dominant perspective. There's a lot of different terms used to describe this, this view. It's kingdom now. Sometimes it's called theonomy. Sometimes it's called, um, well, post-millennialism and some of these other terms. So the idea is that we're primarily responsible. We are the ones that are responsible for conquering law, government, military, entertainment, the family unit, you know, education. All of these different spheres of society become our job to conquer. 
okay? So we, we go from one, you know, side, the pendulum's over here in premillennialism, it swings to the opposite extreme. And this is the eschatology du jour, you know, the eschatology of our time. This is what's hip and trendy right now. This is primarily what a lot of young seminarians are coming out of seminary that will fill the church pulpits in, in the next five, ten years. This is primarily the perspective that we're at right now. My heart and my burden is to say, guys, the eschatology of the Bible is clearly premillennial, but if we apply it rightly, we will be engaged. And so I want to talk about an engaged premillennialism. And so the title of tonight's message is Hope for Tomorrow, Motivation for Today. Okay, so premillennialism as a system is right, but we have to apply it rightly. So let's go ahead. We're just going to look at a whole bunch of verses, and we're going to talk about the nature of biblical hope. What is it that Jesus died for? What did he purchase for us? What are we looking forward to? When we go out into the world and we have good news, what is the essence of the good news? What is it that we're offering people? If we're saying, hey, you should give up adultery and drugs and stealing, here's what you get when you repent of your sins and give your life to Jesus. We need a clear, we need clarity in terms of what it is that the Bible offers. What are we hoping for? What are we looking forward to? Because much of the church today, essentially, if you ask your average Christian, go, what's the gospel? What's the good news? What is it that we're looking forward to? They kind of, in my opinion, have a very truncated, shrunken gospel. They go, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, someday when they die, go to heaven forever. You know, we, go, we, we escape the earth, we escape the body, and we go and we become ghosts, and we worship God forever. And I go, okay, that's better than going to hell. Uh, you know, for clarity, that is good, and, and that's worth giving up drugs for. But it, it lacks substance. It lacks texture. It lacks detail. And that's not the inheritance that I see described in the Scriptures. What the Scriptures actually describe, yes, if we were to die today, our spirits would be with him. But even those that are in heaven are awaiting the day of the Lord. This is the central focal point of the entire Bible. The whole book, the whole story is that there is a day coming when the dead will be raised up out of the ground and we will receive glorified, resurrected, immortal bodies. We will have bodies. They'll be better than these bodies. They will be immortal. We'll be clothed with immortality and, you know, no longer struggling with sin, aging, death, halitosis, I mean, you know, you name it, whatever it is that comes with the body now, it will be gone. But that all the blessings that come with it, again, I mentioned in first service, we get to eat, we get to smell, we get to see all of the senses that God created, we maintain, and we get to enjoy the creation that he made for us. So the first verse I want to look at is Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. In the age to come, after the Messiah returns, when he establishes his kingdom on the earth, there will be no more war. Isaiah 2, verse 2 through 4 says, He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In the age to come, war will be a thing of the past. It will be a distant memory. Now, I am a um, political conservative. I always have been. I was a complete idiot, hippie. I got saved, and I started working for this guy, and we were, I was painting for him. And during lunch break, he goes, you want to listen to some Rush? And he was a pastor. And I go, you listen to Rush? I thought he meant the band. 
He goes, Rush Limbaugh, you idiot. I was like, I have no idea who that is. And um, he's turned on this thing, and all of a sudden, I, I, and then I started reading and studying, and I started understanding, you know, economics and all this stuff. And so I, I went from being this complete Massachusetts, like, hardcore, you know, activist, pothead, legalized hemp man, um, from, to, to suddenly being this conservative, and it was great fun at, at the Christ, family Christmas parties. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm not promoting, I'm not here to promote Rush Limbaugh or anything, or talk radio. That's not the point at all. But I do believe in fiscal conservatism and general, you know, I, I generally lean politically conservative. Not on all issues. There's, there's a lot of issues that drive me crazy. But the point is this. After 9-11, and I think a lot of people in the room can relate, when George W. Bush stood on the rubble of the World Trade Center and he said, the folks that brought these buildings down are going to hear from all of us real soon, I almost stood up and cheered. I said, amen, let's go after him. Let's get some revenge. Let's take care of it. Justice, this righteous indignation. And I cheered for that. That was 2000, that was maybe early 2012. I don't know how long it took before that event took place. Um, it's 2018, January 2015. I went to northern Iraq with some friends. ISIS had just swept across Syria, just wreaked havoc all across Syria, northern Iraq. As soon as that happened, now I've been involved in ministry, outreach to Muslims um, for years. And so we went there. We were trying to do some medical outreach, some uh, evangelism outreach to some communities that were living in um, kind of squalor, refugee status up in northern Iraq, away from the ISIS zones. And um, while I was up there, I had the opportunity to preach at the largest Arab church in northern Iraq. And here I am standing there, and I didn't expect this at all, and I'm not a, I'm not a real emotional, weepy kind of guy, you know, but I'm standing there in front of the, the largest Arab church, evangelical Arab church in, in the whole northern part of the country, looking out into the eyes of all of my Arab brothers and sisters, and it just struck me. It struck me at that moment that I cheered, I celebrated the events that would lead to ultimately the destruction of their country and their lives. And they were living up there in terror that ISIS at that time was going to come and take the city of Erbil. And I mean, and I'm just thinking, I, in self-righteousness, I celebrated that. And I go, you know, so anyway, I'm kind of getting off. The point is this, in, an, in a world of evil, there's a time for war. There is. There's a time to take on bullies and dictators. But most often, the things that we justify as being righteous and so forth, and if you were in the military, you did your duty, you obeyed your commanders. I'm not picking on any of that. Everybody had, everybody had good intentions. But the point is this, very rarely is war righteous. We have more vets today that are committing suicide every day. We have traumatic brain injuries, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and all of the prosthetic limbs and all of the things that are coming with it. War is horrible. And in the age to come, war will be a thing of the past. It will no longer be. Now, because we are people of that kingdom, the kingdom in which there will be no more war, then in this age, you go, well, how does that apply? Because that's our hope. We're looking forward to the age where there is no more war. How does that apply to us now? Well, now in this age, because our job is to tell the good news about this coming kingdom and how we can all be part of it if we repent of our sins, put our trust in Jesus, and in his shed blood, then we can be citizens of that future age to come, that future kingdom. But we don't just do it with our words. We don't just tell people about it. We demonstrate it with our actions. So in this age, we live as people of peace. We live as peacemakers 
peacemakers. We live as people who promote peace. And in doing that, we are demonstrating not just with our words, but with our actions and our lives, the nature of the age to come. Okay, so this is an engaged premillennialism. Because of my hope in the millennium when the Messiah is on the throne, because the scriptures say that's the age of peace, in this age I actively try to, not on a macro level, I'm not under the illusion that I'm going to eliminate war. But one, one conflict at a time, one little mini conflict at a time, we bring peace. One person at a time, one relationship at a time. And then when Jesus comes back, he's conquering the earth. And he's going to establish peace. The job to save the world is not on my shoulders. My job is just to do one at a time, to bring peace one at a time. Do you see the difference between the macro and the micro? The Lord hasn't given us the responsibility to save the world. That's like a ridiculous burden to carry. But he has given us the mandate to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim peace, to exhibit in all these things one soul, one heart, one person at a time. Amen? <clears throat> we get to rebuild the earth. Isaiah 61, verse 4. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the form of devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Wait a minute, Joel. Hold on, hold on. Hold up. You told, you're trying to tell me that after a lifelong working at some lousy job that I can't stand, can't stand my boss, I hate what I do, after I die, I have to work and rebuild the earth? Like, that sounds like a lot of work. No, look, we were all created to be creative. Why? Because everyone in this room is the little kid that as soon as he could picked up crayons and started scribbling on the walls or paper or whatever, right? Why? Because we were created by a creator in his image. Therefore, we are creators. We are creative. We love creating. We love doing stuff. How many people would prefer to take the day off from their job and play in the garden? Right? I mean, this is, just, I mean, most people, you know, this is like, I'm allergic. Okay, that will be over in the age to come. But for the most part, and you know the joke, right? Like, I'm going to save a lot of money, and I'm going to start growing my own vegetables. And then by the end of it, it's like you calculate it, and you're like, this tomato cost me $80, right? There, I think there's a book called like the $80 tomato or something. But even if it costs you all that much money, if you grow it yourself, when you pick that thing and you eat it, you're like, oh, it's the juiciest tomato I've ever had. It's so good. Have you tried my tomatoes? Because you grew it yourself. You automatically love it. Like, you know, same thing with cooking or whatever. There's just something in us that loves partnering with God in creation. How many people would love to be part of Jesus's kingdom architectural planning committee when he rebuilds the earth? I go, God, this is awesome. What, Jesus, what kind of architecture are you into? You know, I go, okay, so Jesus, well, you know, you're Jewish, you're from the Middle East, so do you like these, you know, I, I worked construction in Israel for a year. Like, is it all going to be these block homes that, you know, concrete, and some of them are okay, or is it going to be more Mediterranean? You know, you've got the clay tile roof, they kind of blend into the countryside a little bit better, or, you know, or is it going to be all Jesus, you know, is it going to be like these hobbit homes, you know, the kind of Art Nouveau sort of psychedelic kind of thing built into the hill or, you know, these big Gothic revival like Washington, D.C. Like, like, what kind of architecture are you into? And I have a feeling it's going to be way beyond what we can fathom. We get to be part 
of rebuilding the earth in partnership with Jesus. It says, we will rebuild. They, it's talking about the citizens of the future kingdom, will rebuild the ancient ruins. The earth gets really pretty desolated during the end times. We get to partner with him in the restoration of creation. You know why this, how many people kind of go, woo? How many people, this resonates with you? Do you know why it resonates with us? Because we were created to have bodies. We were created to enjoy. We were not created to be ghosts in heaven, detached. Just, you know, like, I go, that's better, again, than going to hell. But we don't resonate with it because we weren't created to be ghosts. We were created to be part of the blessed earth. We were created to be part of Eden. The Bible goes on. It talks about gardening. Like, so much of the scriptures talk about this very sort of agrarian utopia, you know, that they're growing vines and vineyards, and they're drinking the wine. And, you know, it's not like a drunken Islamic paradise, but, you know... We're not in a Baptist church, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> so just touch the wine just a little bit, but you know how it is. If the Bible says don't get drunk, we build a fence around it, and we don't even want to touch the grape sort of thing. But it says in the age to come, they will, they will plant vineyards, and they will drink their wine. You know, and I'm like, woohoo! I still have not found a verse that says they will brew craft beer. I'm looking. I've been looking throughout the prophets, but it's not there. But, I mean, these things get us excited. They do, because that's what we were created for. Zechariah 3, I'm skipping forward to those on the slide. Zechariah 3, verse 9 through 10. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. So this verse is for the extroverts. What are you guys doing tonight? Come on over. Have you seen my vine and fig tree? Woo! Like, come on over, you guys. Bring the kids. We're going to be grilling or, you know, whatever, right? And so they'll sit under your vine and fig tree. Well, then, let me make sure I got the right verse because it's hilarious. There's an identical verse. That's Zechariah. There's an identical verse. I think it's in Amos. And it says this. It says, and in that day... There will be no one to make you afraid. Each of you will sit in peace under his own vine and fig tree. And I'm like, now that one's for the introverts. So you've got the extrovert verse like, come on over. And then there's the one where it says, and no one will make them afraid. Like, so I have the five kids. So I get up at four in the morning. If I don't get up at four in the morning, then I have no quiet time whatsoever. That's my time. I get up in the morning. I get the coffee. I microwave. I'm like a real low-brow coffee drinker. I drink instant, but nevertheless, I appreciate it. I sit down with a coffee in the morning, and I'm just like... (sighs) Good morning, Lord. It's just us. You know, and it's like, I enjoy that time, right? I got that from Rush Limbaugh. He's the one that makes the slurpy noises into the microphone. But, um, you know, there's, there's something for everyone in the age to come. We get to partner with him in rebuilding. We get to partner w- with him in the, the restoration of all creation. I'm going to skip forward. I love getting lost in this stuff. Skip forward all the way to... It says on the slides, the kingdom of justice. And then the next verse is Isaiah 9, verse 7. It says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now, here's where we are right now in the church. For the past 10 plus years, the issue of justice has been a driving term within the church, particularly among the millennials to where many of the younger segments of the church, it's all about justice. And then Satan loves to Satan's good at judo. So if the inertia is going this way, he goes, okay, they're into justice. Cool. He pushes us a little too far. And next thing you know, he's got a whole generation of young Christians that are basically little socialists for Jesus. You know, it's just social justice. And it's like, it's no longer primarily about saving lost souls and doing, you know, ministry in the process. It's about like, well, I'm a Christian. Therefore, I'm a crusader for socialist political battles, you know, fair and equal housing and, you know, and it's all about health care and all this kind of stuff. And I go, and it's all about politics. And I go, we have to be about justice, but not so much that we just basically primarily become socialists with a little bit of a Christian veneer over it. I see that happening in, in segments of the church. Now, in my opinion, this cry for justice, this move for justice in the church, it's a good thing. It's a really good thing. But here's what's interesting is you get a lot of the young people and they go, no, 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 I'm not into end times. I'm not into any of that end time stuff. I'm into justice. I'm into ministry to the poor. I'm into human trafficking. I'm into um, building wells, sustainable wells, and, you know, all this kind of thing. And this is where, this is, let me give you an example of where it becomes a problem. Um, again, I you know, work with so many missionaries. I talk to missionaries. They go, if I send out my newsletter and I go, we are building wells or we have an orphanage, the money flows in. We get donations. They go, if, if I say we are planting churches and making disciples, winning people to Christ, no one donates. That's, do you see what I'm saying? Where the primary focus becomes this, the justice issues. You know, they go, we literally feel like we have to have an orphanage even though that's not our calling, just so that we can fund the church planting movement wherever they may be, okay? All of these things are important. Clean water, orphanages, human traffic, that stuff's huge. But if we're just saving people, calling them out of Egypt and not leading them into the promised land and giving them the gospel, then it's just a Band-Aid and then they're going to hell. If we don't put the gospel first, if it's not gospel priority, then again, it's just socialism. It's just, you know, social justice, whatever. But we have to be people who are gospel focused. And then as a result, it flows out into doing all this other stuff. So that's kind of an example of my concern. And so you get all these young people and they go, I'm all about justice. I'm not into the antichrist and the mark of the beast and the end times. They go, that stuff promotes a lack of engagement. I want to be involved in all these things. And I go, guys, I go, that's good that you love justice, and that's fantastic. But listen, this whole thing about the end times, yes, the Antichrist, the Mark, that's part of the story, but that's not the main focus. The main focus is the day of the Lord. There is a day coming, and the essence of that day is it is the day of justice. It is the day when all of the injustices of this current age suddenly make sense because the just judge comes and he executes justice. And if it's not for the day of judgment and the day of justice, this whole world doesn't make sense. Why do we turn the other cheek now? Why do we, when someone does something unjust to us, why do we defer judgment unto the day of the Lord? Because we stink at justice and he is fantastic at it. He judges righteously, right? But there is a day 
of justice. And then we pray for those who strike us on the cheek and we say, Lord, give them the gift of repentance before that day so that they can find mercy like I found mercy on that day. And if they don't, then rest assured the day is coming. We live with injustices in this age and we entrust it unto the day of the Lord. We entrust that, that there will be a day of justice. Isaiah 11, verse 4. Look at how this permeates the prophets. Isaiah 11, verse 4. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. What is the emphasis on? Who is the gospel for? Who is the good news for? It's the poor. It's the afflicted. It's the needy. Micah, verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts. Isaiah 29, verse 19, the afflicted will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, verse 6, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy. It's the afflicted, the sick, the, the lame, the blind, those that are needy, the outcast, the forgotten, the hated, the marginalized. This is who the gospel is good news for, because in that day, they will be cared for. Those in Christ who repent in the kingdom will be lifted up, will be healed, will be comforted. And those who are humble and meek will inherit the earth. Conversely, those who put themselves in positions of authority. Do, do I have, there's a chart there. I call it the great reversal. Is that in the, um, yeah. So this is the essence of the world that we live in. The world is sort of like a pyramid in structure. In fact, Jesus, Paul, and Peter all made statements to the effect, they go, don't be like the Gentiles. And in this context, they mean like, don't be like the pagans, for they lord it over one another. He goes, no, but the, great, the one who wants to be the greatest among you, he will be the servant. So every position of authority throughout the earth, every, I don't care if you're the pastor, I don't care if you're the... Uh, NFL commissioner, I don't care if you're the president of the United States or a local senator, I don't care what you are, your position of authority is intended to be a servant of the people that you are serving. There is no position where you're intended to be king and ruler. That doesn't exist. Every position has been established by God to serve the people. However, the world doesn't do it that way. They claw, they exploit, they claw their way to the top, they, they push people aside to get to the top so they can have more power, more money, more prestige, more whatever this, the gold, the gals, the glory, the guys, the gold, the glory, the power. These, these, these politicians, they're supposed to be servants of the people in our system. They get in power, they vote for themselves to have raises, to have no term limits. With five years in office, they become multi, multi-millionaires. You go, how did that happen? Okay, there's a day of judgment coming. And Jesus says, don't do it that way because that's the way the Gentiles, that's the way the pagans do it. He goes, no, do it like me. Although it says in Philippians 2, although he was God Almighty, he existed as God Almighty, he, he made himself, he took on the form of a servant. Even though he made the universe, think about this. Jesus was God who made everything. He didn't come along and demand equality with God. That was not something to be demanded or grasped or seized. He didn't demand to be treated like God. No, he put himself at the back of the line. He put himself at the bottom. He put himself at the back and he came as a servant, even to the point of being humiliated, mutilated and tortured in order that his enemies could become his children. And then 
Paul in Philippians, he goes, have in yourselves the same attitude. We as his followers are called to be like Jesus. The day of the Lord, go to the next slide, is the great reversal. Those who put themselves at the top will be cast down into and or humiliated, humbled, humiliated, and or cast into the lake of fire. Those who are lowly, those who chose to serve, those who chose to imitate Jesus, those who chose to put themselves at the back of the line will be lifted up. He says, come, you who have been faithful in little, take charge over 10 cities. This entire life is an internship for the age to come. In Jesus, it's an internship. He's looking at our faithfulness to determine the job positions that we'll have in the kingdom that's coming. How we live our faithfulness in this age. Listen, our entrance is paid for by the blood of Jesus. This is not a works-based gospel. However, our faithfulness in this age will determine the jobs that we have in the age to come. And sometimes we joke, we go, hey man, I'm just happy to get a bleacher seat. (laughs) I just want in. I get that some days. Some days you're like, I just want to survive to the next day. You know what I'm saying? But look, we can't be people who settle for bleacher seats. The apostles, they go, you know, they go, hey mom, can you go ask Jesus if I can be the one that sits right next to him when he sits on his throne in glory? (laughs) And and James and John's mother is like, Jesus, do you think my son? And he's like, "You you don't know what you're asking. Can he drink the cup? Can they drink the cup that comes with that calling? We need to be people who have that that zeal for the age to come. We believe in the age to come, therefore we live for it now. And so this whole issue of justice, this whole issue of everything gets reversed. Why do we minister to the poor and the needy now? Because in the age to come, they will be cared for by the Messiah in that kingdom. Therefore, we fight for justice now. But we, we don't believe that it's our job. You know, you see these Christians, ministries, they put it on the corner of their website, end poverty in our generation. I go, you're a Christian ministry, end poverty in this generation. Jesus himself said, the poor you will always have with you. What kind of delusion are you under? Jesus is going to come back and end poverty. Until then, we fight for the cause of one poor soul at a time, for one poor case at a time. We fight for the cause of justice, one heart at a time. And so we have to have this sort of grassroots mentality. We can't have this idea that the world is ours to save. When we do that, we get on, this is what I call the kingdom now hamster wheel. How many people had a hamster or a gerbil growing up or your kids had one? They're nocturnal. They all night, they're running on the wheel. Ah! Um, so they get on the hamster wheel. And I see so many Christians like this. How many of you guys remember the idiot in high school? I'll just end it there. No. Um, how, many, how many of you remember the idiot in high school who pulls out of the church parking lot? I'm, I'm not the church parking lot, the high school parking lot. <laughs> Hopefully no one does this in the church parking lot. And he goes, and you know, the tires are spinning, the smoke's going, and he's going nowhere putting on a big show. Wow. You're wasting gas. You're wasting rubber. You're wasting your tires. You're putting on a big show. I'm convinced, and don't get me wrong, I'm convinced that probably 85% of the energy and resources expended by the Western church is like that idiot pulling out of the high school parking lot. Busy time. We're going for it. Woo! And we're going nowhere right? Because we're trying to do things that man, we're trying to do things that God didn't tell us that we have to do. And it's like, we get on the kingdom now hamster wheel. What are you doing? Changing the, I'm going to save the world for Jesus. 
How's that working out for you? I just got to go a little bit faster. And eventually even the strongest fall off and they're exhausted, you know? And, and, and when we, when we take that burden off of our shoulders and we go, no, Jesus is coming back to just conquer the world. He's coming back to conquer the world. But in the interim, I'm going to share the gospel one heart at a time because this is, if you want to, here's how you know if someone is primarily focused on the kingdom now versus the age to come. We get our priorities all skewed up, all messed up. When the primary focus is on law, government, and politics and not the gospel, then we know our main focus is on this age. Now, I'm not saying those things are not important. They are. They affect people. They affect people's lives, et cetera, et cetera. But when every election comes along, and believe me, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a pastor. You know, I, I was in this one um, uh, Baptist church in North Carolina, and I, the minister had me come. I was talking about Islam in the African-American community. I was the only white guy in the entire church, and it was almost like a 2,000-member church, a big church. And uh, it was funny, beforehand they got up, and so this is some years ago, this is right before um, the election, Obama's first term, and the pastor got up and he's like, listen, we need to vote. If we don't get Obama in, this country is done. It's over. Like, this is it. Like, we need to get out there and vote. And then the next week I go to a more predominantly white evangelical church and they're like, listen, folks, we got to get out there and vote because if Obama gets in, this is it. It's over, you know? And it's just funny. I'm like, okay, we're all praying against each other and we're trying, you know? And I go, okay, you know, I'm, I love the diversity of opinion and everything else in the body of Christ. But here's what happens is when we think, okay, I want to change the world. I know I'm going long. I'm going to end it now. <laughs> we, we think, okay, we need to change the world. And so we go, all of these pagans out there, we need to win the election because we need to make laws so that the pagans will stop being pagans, you know. The homosexuals, you know, like if we can just have laws, they'll stop being, stop it, you know, whatever. And, uh, and this becomes the primary focus. But here's the thing. Laws don't change people. You can have all the laws you want. That doesn't change hearts. It doesn't make the unrighteous righteous. Now, it can stop some things. I mean, it can put some parameters. But if we as the community go out and we do it the way Jesus told us to do, which is we change one heart at a time by the proclamation of the gospel of this coming kingdom, and from the inside out, hearts get changed, then what happens is you have tens of thousands of people throughout the community who have new, new hearts. And now they have humble hearts, they have servant hearts, and they have righteous hearts, and they welcome servant leaders, humble leaders, and they wel welcome righteous laws, and they embrace them. That's how you change society. We don't primarily win the battle by winning elections. We have it wrong. If we do our job from the gospel perspective, there will be a natural grassroots thing that will affect society, and you will transform your city when we do our job as the church. Okay, and, and again, ideally, this is not an issue of, well, which church, who wins? It's a matter of, do we have righteous, humble servant leaders in place? That's what we're looking for, because that's the nature of the age to come. And so we can take that burden off of our shoulders. Jesus is coming back to save the world, but we have this hope. We have this anchor of hope for our souls. It's when the, when the whole world melts down around us, we have something firm and secure. It's unchanging. It's coming. But in the meantime, all we have to do is be faithful, one heart at a time, one life at a time, one faithful act at a time. And if we are faithful to do that, he will do his part. He'll do his part. Amen? Little kid riding his bike down the street is going to, and, and making steady, progressive 
progress, he's going to go much further than the guy with his pedal gas to the floor, burning rubber, going nowhere, right? When we partner with God, we're going to get a lot more accomplished. We don't have to disciple nations and conquer and all this stuff, just steady as she goes. That always gets, that always wins the race. So let's take a minute and pray. I just want to uh, sort of solidify this with prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, we live in such a difficult time. We want to walk together in unity. You said how blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil poured over the head, dripping down Aaron's beard. And you said that's the place where you command the blessing. Father, we ask that as a people, you would give us the humble heart of your son and that we would be a people, we would be a house, we would be a church, a community that dwells together in unity, that has the gospel of the kingdom central right in front of us, that has you right in front of us, that you are uh, the vision, you are our vision, you're our model. Jesus, we ask that you would give us grace to be a community and to be a house that changes the community around us, that genuinely impacts even this very churched community of the greater Grand Rapids area. We know that there are multitudes who don't know you, multitudes that are hungry, multitudes that are dying, multitudes that are starving for spiritual food and for, and for living waters. Open our eyes to see those that need to hear the good news. Open our eyes to those along the highways and the byways that you desire to invite to the coming feast, to invite to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Not just here in Grand Rapids, but throughout the earth, that you would make this body a a fire that would send out sparks all over the world, that would see the expansion of your kingdom and the ingathering of the future citizens of this coming beautiful kingdom. We ask that you would give us the gift of repentance to put away those things that are carnal, that have the spirit, um, the spirit of the age. They have an air of wisdom, that there, there is a way that seems right to man. It's popular according to our time, but it's not according to the spirit of God. We ask that you would give us the ability to lay those things aside, to lay aside the carnal, contentious spirit of this age and to put your kingdom first. We give ourselves to you as a room, as a family. We give ourselves to you and we say, Lord, have your way with us. We thank you for these things. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.